Good evening. It's so nice to see old friends and some new friends that I don't know yet. So welcome to everyone. A week or so ago, a Sangha member asked me to talk about our sutra book for one of the Dharma talks. I thought, oh, what a great idea. And the sutras have been central to my own Dharma training, yet I haven't really emphasized them too much in our practice. And so I'm really happy that there's interest in exploring the sutras. And I'm happy because they are gifts from our ancestors, really important gifts, and that can help us wake up. It occurs to me that studying the sutras is a lot like uh, learning piano scales. When I was a piano student, I, I learned to play scales and arpeggios and things like that. And I thought, oh, this is really kind of boring and pointless. But sutras are kind of like that because the sutras and the scales, they aren't beautiful music that you can perform directly. No one wants to hear you play scales for hours. But both of them give us the ability to eventually play beautiful music. And the sutras can seem anachronistic and maybe really distant from our, our lives, our modern, busy lives that are so consumed by uh, things that don't show up in the sutras. But the sutras help us apply their teachings in beautifully modern ways. So they're a lot like the scales. You know, if I wanted to be able to improvise, for instance, and play jazz, I had to know the scales in order to do it. If I want to apply the practice in my life, it really helps to know the sutras deeply. And when I was coming up in practice, we took up these sutras frequently, uh, almost always on retreats that would be focused around a sutra a practice period might be focused around a sutra, and we recited them weekly. We'd have a sutra service, that's what we called it. And even beyond that, often on retreat, we would spend time memorizing sutras. And memorizing them, I remember at the time, felt pretty challenging. Uh, not, I wasn't always too enthusiastic about it. But what it did for me was allow key nuggets that were contained in the sutras to arise in my mind or in my life exactly when I needed them. I wouldn't know that I needed them, but then all of a sudden, this line from the sutra would pop up. Oh yeah, that's what I needed. So I highly suggest that we as a Sangha and as individuals I'll memorize and recite the sutras because I've really got so much benefit out of that and return to it even now today. So let's talk a little bit about the history. What are these things? Where did they come from? Why should we care about them? To do that, we've got to look all the way back to the Buddha. The Buddha was born in what's now Nepal 
uh, either uh, two dates scholars give us for this. One is 563 BCE or 480 BCE. And so pick your date. I don't know which one's correct. I'm not a scholar. And he lived and taught at a time and in a culture when um, knowledge was transmitted orally. They really didn't write things down. They told stories. They memorized um, biblical, te not biblical texts, religious texts and stories. So as the Buddha taught during his lifetime, uh, his students, the monks and nuns, memorized and recited what he said. And the Buddha's assistant, Ananda, who was also his cousin, was said to have uh, a perfect recall of what the Buddha said. Who knows? Maybe it was true. I don't know. Who knows with any of these things that come down, if they're factually true. But the point is that no one was recording this to be put onto YouTube or SoundCloud when the Buddha spoke. They had to remember it and then recite it. So the Sangha would gather regularly and recite what the Buddha said so that as a community they would remember it and they could transmit it to new generations of monastics. And then after the Buddha's death, the Sangha splintered into several different schools, different schools that emphasized different ways of being with the, with the Buddha's teachings. And most of those schools died out. But there's two that are important to our discussion of the sutras, and those two still exist today. They're the Theravada school and the Mahayana school. And so I'd like to talk about each one of those and their relationship to the sutras. So let's talk about first the Theravada school. Theravada means teaching of the elders. Teaching of the elders. And the monks and the nuns who formed the Theravada school felt that the Buddha's teachings were absolutely complete just as he delivered them and that they should be preserved and practiced as closely as possible. It was the conservative school. We have what we need, let's conserve it. The Buddhist teachings were given and transmitted in the original languages, which was a Middle Indo-Aryan dialect. And the Theravadins translated that into the language of Pali. And the later Mahayanas translated the same um, languages into Sanskrit. So those two went different directions in terms of philosophy and different directions in terms of language. So I want to talk about those Theravadan sutras first. In Pali, they use the word sutta instead of sutra. Same, same, same meaning, but Pali word is sutta. The, the Sanskrit word is um, sutra. So at, right after the time of the Buddha, and maybe even during the, at the time of the Buddha, some monks and nuns specialized in memorizing and reciting the suttas. That was their job. They were the knowledge holders for the Sangha. 
And they took this very seriously, I imagine, to make sure that it didn't change because they really wanted to conserve the Buddha's teaching. And then by the first century BCE, the suttas began to be written down. And this was the first time they were written down. And so then there was less emphasis on memorizing the sutras and reciting them from memory. But this was 300 years at least after the Buddha's death. So imagine for a minute playing a 300-year game of telephone with something that was written for us in 1720. I'm a little dubious about how accurate it is. I don't know about you, but... Um, but there have been scholarly studies that have compared different versions of these suttas, and they are remarkably the same. So they may have done a very good job at, at uh, retaining the Buddha's words. But in any case, these Theravadan suttas reflect the oral tradition that they began in. And we can see this in a number of ways. One of the ways is that they have standardized forms. You know how a song often has a standardized form? There'll be a certain uh, meter to it, there'll be a verse and a chorus, and the chorus often repeats parts. Well, the suttas are like that. And we can see that in our sutra book, in some of our sutras. So the, one of the standardized forms is that almost all of these Theravadan sutras start with a version of the line, I heard these Buddha, words of the Buddha one time when the Lord was living in the vicinity of wherever the Buddha was. Or other translations say, um, thus I have heard. But the same basic thing. They're saying, I heard this and I'm telling you about it. Uh, another thing that these Theravadan suttas have in common is they often have lists and numbered lists in them. You know, there's the four foundations of this and the 12 links of that and the eightfold this. And, the, you know, they're, they're very uh, easy to remember that way because they were given a structure that could, you could put into your mind. And then one, just one other thing that we can notice in our sutra book that, that we can see in these older sutras is they have repeating phrases. So in the discourse on happiness, for instance, we hear again at the end of each stanza, this is the greatest happiness. And the next stanza, this is the greatest happiness. So all of these are, are remnants from this oral tradition. So I'd like to show you something here and share my screen with you. And hopefully you can see this uh, uh, in the Zendo. <clears throat> but what this picture is, this is a picture of some of the very earliest Buddhist sutras. And they're written on birch bark. They were found in Gandhara in what's now Afghanistan. And these are believed by scholars to be from the first century BCE. So the veriest early written texts that we have. Pretty neat to see, isn't it? Imagine those have been sitting in a, in a jar, I imagine, in uh, you know, an amphora, probably in a desert region where it's dry, so they survived. 
And this this next picture is if I can get it to you. The next picture is how the suttas were typically written and preserved for most of their history. They're written on palm leaves. This is the kind of paper made of palm leaves. And they're in this shape. Uh, and they're they're you know they're red across, you know, not up and down, but they're they're horizontal. And the Tibetan sutras are still in this form. Uh, you'll see that when you see Tibetans um, reading from their sutras. I just thought you'd like to see some pictures of the really, really early uh, suttas and, and how those were written down. So that's the, that's the Theravadan suttas. Now how about the Mahayana sutras? Mahayana and Theravada have a different emphasis in practice. Mahayana focuses on the bodhisattva path and on the continued flowering of Dharma wisdom. And while Theravadan focused on preserving and conserving the original teachings of Buddha, Mahayana doesn't just focus on that, doesn't reject that. But what it wants to focus on instead is the direct experience of the Dharma in the here and now. And Zen is a Mahayana tradition. So we have the Mahayana tradition in us. And I wanted to offer this quote by, by Tai. This is what he wrote about uh, focusing on just the sutras that are the words of the Buddha. He said, liberation and awakened understanding can't be found by devoting ourselves to the study of the Buddhist scriptures. This is like trying to find fresh water in dry bones. Returning to the present moment, using our clear mind, which exists right here and now, we can be in touch with liberation and enlightenment, as well as with the Buddha and the patriarchs as living realities right in this moment. So this quote really encapsulates the difference between the Theravadan and the Mahayana approach. What Tai is saying here is that you can't look back only to the words of the Buddha if you want to wake up. What you have to look to is your own experience in the present moment, your own deep practice right now. And that is the living blood of the practice not trying to find fresh water and old dry bones. But it's more complicated than that, and I'll get to that in a minute, despite what Tai says. <clears throat> so we are a Mahayana Zen tradition, and our tradition arose in Vietnam. And there's, that is important for us to understand why our sutra book is like it is. Vietnam enjoyed influence from both the Theravada and Mahayana traditions. And the reason that it did was that it was located between India and China. And there were centuries of people traveling back and forth between the land of the Theravada in India, Sri Lanka, Burma, those areas that where Theravada is strong, and the land of Zen and Mahayana, which was China, Korea, Japan. 
And so Vietnam just kept getting these influences again and again, back and forth, back and forth. And so our practice and our sutra book reflect those influences. It's pretty cool. You know, a, a lot of uh, Theravadan uh, sanghas, which insight meditation, for instance, is a Theravadan sangha, and I'm friends with a insight meditation teacher. And oftentimes he hasn't heard of the, of the sutras we use. And uh, sometimes uh, Zen practitioners, maybe the Japanese Zen practitioners, don't have any idea about the Theravadan sutras. But we get them both. It's so cool. We get them both. And we can really benefit from those. But we've got this tiny little sutra book. It's just a handful of pages. And it's a very small collection of all of the sutras that are out there. Very, very small. And I want to share one another picture with you now. Okay, this is a picture of a, of a monastery in Korea that contains what's called the Tripitaka Koreana. This is of 8,100, excuse me, 81,258 wooden printing blocks containing the whole of the sutras. 81,258. What do we have, like uh, 40 pages in our sutra book? And these were originally created in 1087 in Korea. And then the Mongols invaded Korea and burned them all up in 1232. And this, what we're seeing here, was re-carved between 1237 and 1249. And they have been in this place ever since. And so these monastics have tended to these, and they're apparently in very, very good condition. That's a, that's a pounded um, earth floor there. They actually experimented and took some of these out of this environment into another place where they thought it would be a better environment and they decayed right away. And so they knew that this was the place they needed to leave, leave them. They've been there for a long, long time. But the reason I'm showing you this, not just because it's interesting, but just to give you a sense of the scale of the sutras that are out there. It's enormous. And few of them have been translated into English. Most of the Theravadan sutras have been translated into English. But the Mahayana Sutras, very few of them have. So there's a wealth of knowledge that we don't have access to yet. All right, on to our Sutra book. So as I was saying, our Sutra book contains both Theravadan and Mahayana Sutras. When, when Thai came to the West and established Plum Village, he identified four primary sutras for the Plum Village tradition. And those sutras are the Discourse on the Full Awareness of Breathing, which in our book is uh, number 17, 
the discourse on knowing the better way to live alone, which is number 16. The discourse on the four establishments of mindfulness, which is 20. And the discourse on the white-clad disciple, which is 25. So I just want to mention kind of briefly what each one of these sutras offers us. Why, why should we care about them? What does it matter to our lives? But before I do that, I just want to say that all of these, ironically, are Theravadan sutras. So here we are, a Zen tradition, and what does Thai identify as the four vital sutras for the Plum Village tradition? Four Theravadan sutras. So that's the more complicated story from the quote I read you earlier. Dry bones indeed, huh? <clears throat> so I think the reason that Thai is doing this is he is encouraging us to ground ourselves in the Buddha's core teachings. He really wants us to ground ourselves in what the Buddha actually taught. And then we take on the Mahayana Sutras. So, back to why do we, why do we pay attention to each one of these sutras? So, let's start with the discourse on knowing the better way to live alone, with number 16. This sutra teaches us how to dwell happily in the present moment how not to be swept away by how we imagined things used to be in the past, or how we imagine things will be in the future, or even how things are in the present moment. When we study the discourse on knowing the better way to live alone, we learn how to dwell happily here and now. Very important. What could be more important for our lives in the modern time when we are not so happy, we're not, we're not doing so well as a culture. So this, this sutra is an antidote. The second of the four, the discourse on the full awareness of breathing, and number 17. In this sutra, we learn the 16 stages of full awareness of breathing. And this is not a trivial list. This is not something you read once and say, I got this. This is a lifetime of practice. So this teaches us how following the breath can take us from calming our nervous system all the way to full liberation and all the steps in between. Very important practice. The third of the four, Discourse on the Four Establishments of Mindfulness, number 20. So in this sutra, we learn how to dwell in observation of the body, the feelings of the mind, and of the objects of the mind. Those are the four establishments of mindfulness. And if we practice this sutra, we learn that the simple act of feeling is transformation. It sounds so simple, but to feel how things actually are 
transforms our suffering. And finally, the discourse on the white-clad disciple. In that sutra, we learn how to deepen our practice as lay practitioners. So much of the um, sutra material was written or recited by monastics, ultimately for monastics. And Thai was teaching for lay people, and so he brought this sutra in so that we learned how to practice as lay people not as people living in a monastery. So I want to say a few more words about the Mahayana Sutras, because I talked a little bit about the Theravadan Sutras as being words of the Buddha. But the Mahayana Sutras in our book do something different than that. The Mahayana Sutras in our book show us the direct transmission of Zen. You know, they aren't, they aren't, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. So there's, there's really four of those that are, that are key in our sutra book. The first one is the Heart Sutra, and it's called now the insight that brings us to the other shore. There's Tori Zenji's Bodhisattva's Vow. There's Shi Tao's Song of the Grass Roof Hermitage and Hakuin Zenji's Song of Zazen. Those, those last three, Tori Zenji, Shi Tao, and Hakuin, are all um, important Zen teachers. So these are very, very different from the Theravadan Sutras that tell us how to practice. These don't tell us how to practice, these, these Mahayana Sutras. The Zen Mahayana Sutras are instead an expression of practice. Right? They're not a list that says, do this, do that. They are an expression of that person's practice that was offered to us. So they're, they're poems or they're dialogues, but they're one way or another a demonstration of an awakened mind. And because they are demonstrations of an awakened mind, they often don't make sense when we first read them. Because we don't have an awakened mind. So they sound pretty darn baffling. But the deeper our practice grows, the more these sutras reveal our practice to us. What seemed absolutely baffling, bit by bit, begins to resonate with you and say, oh, yes. It shows you your awakening mind. And ultimately, as your mind wakes up, these sutras, which seem so confusing when you first read them, become absolutely as clear and obvious as the Theravadan lists. Just as clear. but it only happens when your mind has the freedom to accept the words. Until then, ooh, they're a challenge. So I want to talk about just one of those for now, and that's the Heart Sutra. Because the Heart Sutra is the central sutra 
of Zen practice. And the Heart Sutra usually hangs above the altar in most Zen practice centers. I know that it did at Mindfulness Community of Puget Sound, where I, where I was a student, and at Mountain Lamp, where I was a student. The Heart Sutra is practiced more than it's understood. You don't read it and get out of an encyclopedia and look up the words and compare translations, things like that. That really doesn't help. And so you just have to accept that when you first read it, it doesn't make much sense. It really doesn't. It's just, well, what? Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. What, is, what are they saying? It just doesn't make much sense. But engaging with the Heart Sutra is just like coming back day after day to sit on our meditation cushion. We do that without a clear idea of why we're doing it. We do it because we come to sit. We recite and read the Heart Sutra to recite and read the Heart Sutra. You know, in many American uh, Japanese Zen um, practice centers, they recite the Heart Sutra in Japanese. There is no hope that the Americans or the Canadians or the Germans or whoever it happens to be are, are um, understanding the words. No hope. Maybe it's, maybe it's even purer to do it that way than to do it in English where we think we might understand. But when we do that over and over and over again, over and over and over, like we did as I was growing up in practice, we just recited that. I don't know if it was weekly, but it was often enough that we chanted it and, the, and the, the tune was in my head, the words were in my head, and bit by bit it would say, oh, oh, of course. And then another line, another year later, might do the same thing. So as my own clarity opened up, the Heart Sutra opened up and reflected back to me the clarity of my own awakening. And that happened over and over and over again until one day it was as clear as this. can't put words to that, but it's clear as a bell. Mm. That's what the Heart Sutra is like. So Tai retranslated the Heart Sutra not long before he had his stroke in 2014, and he gave it a new title. He called it The Insight That Brings Us to the Other Shore. And he, has, he saw that the previous translations that we were using often trapped people in confusion. So he wanted to translate it in a, in a new and fresh way. And I, and I have to kind of giggle because I don't know that there's anybody else in the world who could have translated the Heart Sutra and have it be accepted. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the man of the clear heart and clear eye, 
could do this in a way that no one else could. So it's a, it's a very interesting translation. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that translation lives over, over time. Uh, yeah. But I really want to encourage us all to please practice with the Heart Sutra so that you can let it set, seep into your bones in the way that it has seeped into people's bones for millennia or at least centuries. And I encourage you to struggle with it, to, to accept that it doesn't make any sense, that you don't know what this is all about, until bit by bit, one day you share Avalokiteshvara's insight that the Heart Sutra is about and that you become as free as Avalokiteshvara. You can't think your way to that. That's a heart transformation. Okay, so the last part of our sutra book that I want to talk about is it also contains a set of ceremonies. And the ceremonies show us how to unite with our ancestors in ritual. Again, this is like the Mahayana Sutras in that the uniting in, in ritual with our ancestors directly transmits the practice to us, not in a way that we understand with our mind, but that we grow to feel in our body. So the, some of the things that are in our, in our sutra book are the incense offering, uh, bowing to the bodhisattvas, our five and 14 mindfulness trainings, formal meal gattas, uh, practice gattas, you know, things that, things that we do over and over and over again in a ritual way. And this has been particularly hard for us to transmit in our COVID era because it's made having rituals very challenging. We used to have a practice form predicated on us all being together in the same room over and over again, but that's been interrupted. So we're having to find new ways to transmit the Dharma in this direct ritual way. And my hope is that we'll eventually return to enjoying these ancient gifts so that we can benefit from that direct transmission rather than just thinking that words alone will do this for us. Because words alone won't do this for us. There's something very, very powerful about doing ritual together. So that's about all I wanted to say. And I just want to conclude by um, reiterating that our sutra book is a really deep and lovely gift. But it's only deep and lovely if we utilize it. And I'd like to suggest that our practice leaders take up a single sutra for their own practice and live with it for some time. Whatever that time is, I don't know. It just depends on, on you. And then when it's your turn to lead, please feel free to bring forth your understanding of your practice with that sutra. And it doesn't have to be the final word on the whole sutra. It doesn't have to be about the whole sutra at all. Maybe just a single paragraph or a phrase that you had one of those oh, moments about. That would be lovely. Please feel free to share your insights. 
And I'd also like to suggest that we make sutra recitation and study a regular part of our weekly sangha practice. And I would hope that we'd make room at least monthly to recite sutras so they can become one with our minds and one with our bodies and be available to us when we need them the most. When we don't know that we're suffering and all of a sudden we see the line from the sutra come and address our suffering and help us through. And then finally, I just want to express that I hope all of us will utilize the gift of these sutras personally. Our ancestors made these gifts available to us uh, centuries ago, and some millennia ago. And they've been sitting right here in front of us all this time, just like those wood blocks in Korea. The only really question is not if they're there, but will you use them? Will you wake up with the sutras? <laughs> 